one of the things Netflix does exceptionally well is recognizing when they need to change direction. And almost right after the streaming started, we realized that is the future. That is what yeah. customers need to get right. And we will prioritize every single decision about getting streaming right, even if yeah. it cannibalizes our existing business, which at that moment is 99% of our revenue. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Mark Randolph. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Eric. How are you doing? Doing great. Well, thanks for coming on. So to start, I'm just going to assume that you're born, you come out, you start, you know, putting together a movie playlist for everyone or like from the beginning, did you have a fascination with movies or take me all the way back to childhood? <laughs> oh boy, certainly no fascination with movies. I mean, my uh, my movie tastes were the same as everybody, which is I didn't, you know, I was not like one of those guys who was like debating who the best French cinematographers were or anything like that. And in fact, you know, assuming you asked that because of the whole Netflix connection, you know, even up until that point, uh, I wasn't into movies at all. You know, I had young kids. All I ever watched was Disney stuff. So th this was purely, be anything, the connection to movies was purely because the same frustrations that everyone had of uh, renting movies. Makes sense. And so let's start with where were you born? I was born in uh, Westchester County in New York, a suburb of New York City, a bedroom community. Basically, uh, nothing to do. <laughs> and so I can ask, how'd you fill that time? Like, what did you find yourself as a kid into? Uh, it's, it's, it is kind of interesting because I, I lived, you know, I want to say I live in the country. I didn't really live in the country, although we did. We were surrounded by woods and all side. And I remember pretty much amusing myself. You know, I'd be going out and exploring in the woods and just figuring out stuff. Like, you know, one day I decided I wanted to learn how to repel, you know, that thing of climbing where you slide back down a rope and, you know, finding a book, no internet back then, and, uh, you know, getting a rope out of the garage and hooking it up to a tree and <laughs> figuring it out that way. I decided I wanted to learn how to play golf, you know, and so I borrowed my, my mom's clubs and I remember hitting apples walking around. We had an orchard going around and just hitting apples was my, uh, my practice. So kind of from the very beginning, I just remember filling my time with things that were interesting to me. Yeah. But there wasn't some, it wasn't like I was one of those kids who grew up knowing from the age of four that I want to be a veterinarian or, yeah. you know, I want to be a fireman. I had no idea, but, you know, unlike what it seems like a lot of kids today or have the pressure of, I didn't feel I needed to figure it out either. There wasn't yeah. that pressure. It was a, a pretty good childhood. And my parents were, uh, were extremely supportive of this experimentation. You know, I, I would come back That's to tell my dad, hey, I think I'm going to go caving uh, with the middle school outing club or something. And rather than getting one of those reactions that, oh my God, you're going you're gonna to kill yourself. He'd go, yeah. oh, that sounds interesting. It was always, you know, always, sure, take the fork here, which is a little bit less well-known. Yeah. And what did your parents do? What were their focus, professions, passions? My, my, uh, my dad was an investment banker, as a matter of fact. So he was one of those guys who got on the uh, on the train every morning, commuted an hour into New York City, you know, wore a overcoat and a hat and did that for years and years and years and years and quite honestly hated it. And I think that in some ways was what was the formative thing for me was seeing that my dad was by all exterior means uh, successful. I mean, we lived a fairly, very comfortable upper middle class existence, but it kind of imprinted on me that that wasn't what it was about, that yeah. there was other things you had to do. I could tell that he was going through motions that he did not really feel strongly about, that given his druthers, he would do something else. My mom was a realtor. She had a chain of offices. She was a real estate broker. So she was a small business. She was an entrepreneur. She was a hustler. And I saw the things that she went through trying to make as she began to grow and build her business. But I think, you know, the funny, the, the, the connection here is we lived in a fairly affluent, I'd say a very affluent uh, bedroom community of New York City. And my, my parents' friends were very successful, you know, very wealthy. And for the large part, none of them seemed particularly happy. You know, the, they were divorcing or they had their kids wouldn't talk to them. And it was this interesting lesson that kind of, for me, said that money and happiness are two different axes. 
yeah. all things being equal, better to have one than the other. But it's not like yeah. if you have a lot of money, it will make you happy. You're going to have to figure out ways to um, make both of those things at work. And I think that's kind of one of the lessons as I look back. This was not explicitly taught. It wasn't like my dad said, you know, do something different. Don't get stuck like I did. But I can't help but believe it rubbed off on me. And so I got to ask, what age were you when you kind of figured that out where you're like, oh, maybe money's not the only thing that matters or the pursuit that I need to worry about? I don't know, 40? (laughs) (laughs) It was more a hindsight thing. Like you still thought as a kid, like, or when you grew up, I need to go pursue. No, it's not like this is something that when you, when you're born at age, uh, you know, 18 months, you're going, how can can I sell my rattle and make, I I think these are things that are pushed onto you by the culture, by, by marketing people, you know, those, those evil marketing people um, who are basically trying to say, Hey, if you only, you could have, if only you had this watch, Oh my God, think of the chicks. You know, it's, and I think what really happened is not that I was spared that. I'm not saying I escaped it entirely. You can't. You're soaking, you're steeping, as the term is in that culture. But I never had this connection. I mean, you know, when I became an entrepreneur, it was never about making a lot of money for myself. It really, I mean, Mm -hmm. it it sounds stupid, but it it really was never a motivation. It, yeah, it can't be, to be honest. Like you're, you're going to have to go through phases where you're not making a lot of money as an entrepreneur. And so if money's motivating you, you probably burn out in those phases. And you know, if you want to do startups, to think that you have any ability to predict whether this idea that I have is one that's going right. to make money or not, you're going to be disappointed almost all the time. And if you set that as your goal, you're going to be unhappy with your career because it's almost yep. never going to turn out the way you want. And it's not like I had this grand strategy when I was in my 20s. Looking back, I realized how lucky I was that I wasn't driven by that because it allowed me to pursue things purely on the criteria of, were these interesting to me? Rather than, oh, what's my TAM for this? And that's a weird abstract thing to use for decisions about what you want to spend your time on. And I'm not saying it doesn't work for a lot of people. I mean, I certainly am in enough pitch meetings where I've had those words come out of my mouth. And you're trying Mm -hmm. to say, all things being equal, you'd rather pursue something which has the opportunity to make money than not. But if that's your motivation, that's what I'm saying I was spared of and which I, in retrospect, think was a very, very healthy and positive thing for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so where, at what point did you decide you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Were you in high school or something and you're like, okay, I want to start building things or? No, because back when, back when I was a lad, which, you know, I don't know if, if those people who are seeing this in the video format can tell that was quite a while ago, that there wasn't such a thing as being an entrepreneur. I mean, certainly yeah. there were entrepreneurs. But right. it wasn't a a pop culture thing. There weren't TV shows about it. There weren't movies about it. There weren't podcasts about it. No one really talked about it. And so this was not a thing that was up there with, well, you can be a policeman, you can be a fireman, you can be a veterinarian, or you can be an entrepreneur. That fourth category, no one ever mentioned. I was just drawn to it, but not to it as a career. I was just drawn to being one of those guys who whenever they saw a hole, wouldn't walk by, but go, I got to kind of fill that hole. Or, you know, yeah. you see the the pup, the box of puppies on the side of the road. You don't go, oh, I wonder where those puppies come from. You go, gosh, someone's got to take care of those puppies. And that's been the, for as long as I can, you know, when I was six or five, you know, I had my first job where I was, um, I was selling seeds, you know, like yeah. vegetable seeds and flower seeds. And it was this, almost this child exploitation thing where if you sold 6,000 packets, you got a whistle or a compass or something something like that. But it was door to door. And I really remember that when most kids were watching reruns of uh, Leave it to Beaver or My Three Sons or something like that, I was out hustling, selling seeds and not because I needed the money, but because this was a problem. I kept getting the door gets slammed in your face. Well, can I dress differently? Can I say something differently when I knock on the door? Does it help to bring my younger sister along? Uh, Where the confidence come from to deal with the rejection? Because even most adults can't deal with that, let alone kids that are like door slammed in my face. Well, what did I do wrong? Let's fix this. Not, oh God, I shouldn't do this anymore. That doesn't feel good. Exactly. And again, with the benefit of hindsight, I know exactly what it was. It's I've always had this mindset that says the interesting thing is the problem. Yeah. That's the interesting thing is solving the problem. And so getting the door slammed in your face, that's just fine. The problem yeah. is how am I going to sell some seeds? How am I going to, if I get them to buy one, yeah. how am I going to get them to buy three? How do I get them to buy six? 
And so each time the door gets slammed in your face, it's just an experiment that didn't work. It's just an approach that didn't happen. And you drag your little sister along and you go, oh my God, that that worked remarkably better. That's what gives you the courage to overcome rejection. What gets you in trouble is when you, as I I sometimes say, when you fall in love with your idea, Mm -hmm. when you're sitting at home dreaming about how many whistles you're going to have because you're going to sell them, you have this whole big fantasy in your head of how easy and successful you're going to be and you knock on the first door and then that whole fantasy gets blown to pieces. And yeah, that's crushing. But I don't build the fantasy. I go, God, this would be kind of interesting. How am I going to figure this out? And listen, this is, yep. again, I'm not saying I thought that way when I was six, but the you asked, when did that desire to become an entrepreneur happen? And I'm just saying it's always been there. It's yep. always been this person who wanted to start something or build something or make something or test something or sell something. And I was I did it for years and years and years so that by the time I actually finally did it in a more conventional commercial entrepreneurial setting, I'd been acting like an entrepreneur for 15 or 20 years already. That makes sense. And so what did you, I assume you went to school and you went to college with parents like that? I had both actually. Yes. I would say, what would you end up going to study? What was your thoughts at that point? <laughs> I mean, I guess on paper, I was a geology major. So, mm-hmm. uh, which of course, that's the first thing you would uh, have expected from a guy who was yeah, an entrepreneur, a geology major. But it, it kind of makes sense. I'm, I'm a big outdoors person. You know, I've always yeah. loved you know, climbing and backcountry skiing, mountain biking, kayaking, whatever. And so when I discovered that there was actually this thing you could study in that involved spending most of your weekends and afternoons doing field trips, I was yeah. I was all in. So this was, again, just part of that pattern of I did not have some aspiration of this is a great career because I want to be a petroleum geologist. This was this looks really interesting. I'm in the mountains already all the time. It'd be kind of cool to understand where they came from and what this particular rock was. But this was really just one more path of um, uh, following my curiosity. But the thing that I really got out of school, because I, you know, I couldn't tell a piece of uh, sandstone if you dropped it in my head right now. It's that in college, I often say that I majored in extracurricular activities. And I don't mean chasing women or drinking. I mean that I use it as an opportunity to make things. You know, yeah. I, uh, I joined the outing club and it was like six kind of lame people in a closet. And I, over four years, built it into this huge organization. But just because it was so an interesting puzzle to solve. You know, I started yeah. a magazine. We started clubs. We did, put on plays. How, what was interesting about it? Was it just how do you build this? Was that yeah. It's like, why isn't, you'd start off by why isn't there, why isn't there a humor magazine on campus? Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, well, rather than just bemoaning that and then going over back to the uh, counter to get another donut, you go, why don't I start one? And then you go through all the exact same phases that an entrepreneur have to go to. You've got to convince people to help you uh, and and not pay them. You've got to go to the student government and ask for money. You've got to work with the the administration to say, we're going to do this, or you've got to say, we're going to do this outside the main channel. You've got to have, when the school uh, finds something offensive and tries to shut you down, you learn how to fight that. I mean, yeah. all these exact same skills that you, I had developed over the 10 years previously doing smaller scale things and all the exact same things I do for the next 40 years doing much larger scale things. It was just say, another opportunity to do stuff. Yeah. It's like anything else. You had so many reps, even though they were on a smaller scale, you had already gone through the things that everybody has to go through to, you know, as you build an entrepreneur. So like the, when you go to start your companies, I assume you've already gone through some of the challenges you mentioned, like the school trying to shut you down, et cetera, where it's like, then when the challenges come up with your first business, et cetera, you're like, yeah, this is how this works. Like, Absolutely right. Go- it, and it's an important, it's a really important point. You know, people get, unfortunately, people have this vision that startups is all about pitching for money and stuff like that. And they're terrified and they go, how do I go in and pitch a VC for $5 million or $20 million? And I go, well, the exact same way that you probably pitched your student government for $250. Well, I never yep. done that. Well, why not? You know, yeah. you can't, don't just, if you, let's say, I, lo- I really want to learn how to play golf. Well, great. Well, that's what you sign up for the masters as your very, very first golf game. <laughs> Not going to happen. Exactly. Those people, you know, yeah. Tiger Woods has been, was playing golf since he was three. Um, yeah. And he, he had high pressure games when he was nine. He swung the golf club millions and millions and millions of times before he actually got in a situation where he had to do it under that pressure for that amount of money. 
I mean, it's yeah. the exact same thing for entrepreneurship. You you develop those skills, which is why I tell people start. You know, it doesn't. You don't need to yeah. launch a big company. Do something on the side. Do a side hustle. Do a website. Do something yeah. which begins to give you the experience in a low consequence setting that doesn't cost any money. That doesn't require you to quit your job or drop out of school or any of that crap. Because those are this. That's how you build those muscles. Yep. No, that's exactly it. And. I think you mentioned it with the, you know, the pop culture of entrepreneurship. You have people that were like, well, that I should just go do that. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and they don't know what they're signing up for. As you said, they have no background, no experience. And so they get into it. And it's like, you know, when you have, you aren't able to ramp up. And as you said, you go straight to the masters. It's a rude awakening too. Yeah. It, it's an interesting message because at the same time, I, a lot of people go, oh, I can't do this because they think that being an entrepreneur requires that I've got to quit school or I got to drop, quit my job and I've got to hire 18 people and I need to know how to code and I need to yep. raise. And to do it at that scale, yes, you can't just jump in one day and do it because it, it, it there's a million new skills to learn. But if you do want to be an entrepreneur, it's not rocket science. Yep. It's anybody, really, anybody can do it. You just have to scale your aspirations down to your originating abilities, which usually means you start very small and you start on the side and you pick yep. one small thing to do and little by little begin to do it. And you, you'll make mistakes, you know, inevitably. And you just want to set yourself up so that you make small mistakes, so you make inconsequential mistakes. And that's how you do it. And the shows like Shark Tank and et cetera, that in some ways it's a disservice because it makes it seem like that's all entrepreneurship is, is pitching. And once yeah. you've done that, your problems are solved. And in fact, it's a very, very, very small piece of what an entrepreneur actually yeah. does. A good piece of advice I got when, because I started, you know, as a young age, buying into that, the best line I've ever heard is money's expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's very you true. Know, that comes a lot. And so it's not just like, oh, now here's 5 million bucks. Good luck. Yeah, it's, not only they're, they may align with my vision, but no, yeah. they want their $5 million back and they want it back multiplied by some large number. And you have an yeah. obligation now to chase their dream, not just chase your own yeah. dream. So that's yeah. almost a last, using, doing that sort of fundraising is in my, many events, a last resort rather than the unlocking. Yep. So- what did you see so in college? You built sounds like you built a lot of things. What'd you come out? You, you know, geology major, you're coming out of college. What was your first thought of this is what I'm going to do with my life? Well, I like most college students, I hadn't the slightest idea. So I decided to ride my bicycle cross country. I thought that was a, oh. a, a good way to kind of stall engaging with the real world. What was the where'd you go? New York, LA, or what was the... I did uh, Colorado to New York. So, okay, okay. okay. Two thirds of the country, but I did the Rockies, so that counts for. I'm going I'm to wow. give myself credit for eighty to ninety yeah. percent of the country. But you know, I and I, I did. I had another job. I managed a ghost town resort in Colorado. I did a lot, a lot of weird stuff, having no idea what I wanted to do. And I, but I think the kind did of the, you, I think I missed. Did you go to school in Colorado? No, no. I went to school in in New York, in upstate New York. Went to Hamilton College, little. Oh, okay. Liberal arts yeah. school up there. But the reason I Colorado yeah. figures prominently is that uh, every summer, for the most part, during high school and a large part of college, I used to do these courses with a school called the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, which was basically a leadership school that would use the wilderness as a classroom. And I was a student yeah. there for a bunch of years, and then I was an instructor there. And so the American West, I spent a lot of time out there and ended up getting yep. a job, uh, as I said, running this ghost town resort in yep. the mountains in Colorado, which was interesting in its own right. But I, as yep. I was going to say, I think the unlock came after college. I got this job at a music publishing company. You know, it did sheet music, you know, like John Denver for auto harp or Led Zeppelin for tuba, you know. Yeah. Weird shit like that. And uh, my job was, well, now <laughs> it has a glorified name. Now they call it chief of staff. But basically yeah. what I was was a gopher. And I just followed the uh, CEO around with a pad, yeah. keeping him on track. You know, so if yeah. he said, Eric, why don't you give me those numbers by Wednesday? Well, yeah. I'd write down, make sure he gets Eric numbers by Wednesday. Or if, yeah. if, if Eric said, oh, make sure I'll commit to sure I'll get this done, make sure he follows through with this. So it was kind of interesting because I had this front row seat to what a CEO actually did, you yeah. know, how they dealt with employees, how they dealt with the board, how they dealt with customers, how they managed their time. 
But this music publishing company had a bunch of divisions. We had a magazine, you know, we had a wholesale, we had a retail, but we had a mail order division. And for some reason, the mail order division spoke to me and I told the CEO, I really love that job. And he goes, it was one of those things where everyone who wants this job take one step forward and everyone steps back. But then the reason is because calling it a mail order division was just as misleading as calling it chief of staff, because yeah. basically all it was, was a sentence in the back of all the songbooks that said, for a list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to a PO box so-and-so. And my job running the mail order division was when those orders came in, when the requests came in, I would go make a Xerox copy of the list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks. I'd fold it up and stick it in the self-addressed stamped envelope and mail it back to them. And then if they ordered something, I'd go out to the warehouse and I'd pick and pack and ship the mail, the music book. But for some yep. reason, light bulb went off. This was the most incredibly fascinating thing. And I began experimenting as I've explained is my want. You know, I began doing a two-sided list of more great Cherry Lang songbooks. They did in color. I put pictures. I did catalogs. I would mail out to mailing lists. And I taught myself direct response marketing. I taught myself how, the mail order business. How old were you at that point? 23. So again, it, it's just fun to see because, I mean, it sounds like you had taken the reins so many times that at 23 years old and your first job, or I guess second job out of college, you just go to the CEO and like, I want to run that department. It's like, Okay. Like nobody else wants it. Go for it. Again, as someone that has a lot of employees, it's worked with a lot of people. Like most people never gain that ability. And it's a really, it's a really compelling one of like just to step up and be like, I want to do this. I can do this. Yes. But it's again, no one else wanted this. I mean, I'm right. sure the CEO yeah. was rolling his eyes and going, well, I don't know what he, what he's thinking. And because a lot of people go, their mail order, direct response is a joke. And yeah. why wouldn't you want to be in the magazine division? Because I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is glamorous or exciting or a big career yeah. step. I was going, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's using that as a criteria has never failed me. And it didn't fail me here. I became direct response, became the cornerstone of my life, all of my life, actually, because I still use those techniques uh, all the time yep. today. But it was a fascinating thing. It, it steeps you in analytics. It steeps you in creativity. It steeps you in the sense of testing. Well, we eventually launched, we did a magazine that I, uh, after a few years, and we, we launched a new magazine and I did that for them. So it got me into subscriptions, which yeah. was obviously played a big role in my career yeah. later on. I mean, all these things. And then I left that music publishing company and helped- How were you there? Uh, I was there for, gosh, was I 25, 27, okay. 28? Okay. Yeah, so, about then. I was there for three or four years. Okay. You know, then we left there and was recruited to help start a magazine. And it was a computer magazine back at the very, very beginning of when personal computers were coming out. It was for the Macintosh. Yeah. It's called Mac User Magazine. Yeah. And we launched Mac User Magazine. And that was fascinating because I was running circulation, which was all this, the subscription marketing for that. And yep. built this magazine up. And then we sold it to Ziff Davis and then decided we would enter the computer catalog business, selling computer software and peripherals. And this mm -hmm. time, this, was, this one was entirely on me, was getting a company called Mac Warehouse off the ground from start to finish. Again, deeply steeped in that. And there was all about, there, one of the things I pioneered was next day shipping which yep. now is, of course, everyone expects that from Amazon. You order today, you'll get it in your mailbox tomorrow. Back then, it would blow people's minds. But we had to work with this brand new company called Federal Express to how is this going to actually happen? Uh, and yep. again, figuring things out along the way. Then came out to California, uh, turned around a mail order company, a computer mail order company here in California. And when we sold that company, that was the next yep. big turning point. Uh, because I was now, I had moved from New York. I'm sorry. Yeah, how old were you? I was 30, just okay. turned 30. You're getting hired to help turn around companies at 30. Yes, because I mean, I knew, and it, it was one of those things where I had run mail order companies for, a, doing mail order for a long time and doing yeah. specifically a computer mail order company. So when they sat mm -hmm. down and said, here's the company we're trying to fix, this is a VC firm that, that uh, recruited me to do this. I could hear the numbers and it was like seeing it in stereo. You know, I immediately yeah. knew what was on, what was off, and I knew what we had to fix. Yeah. And fortunately, this company was located in Carmel, California. Yeah. So this East Coast boy who never thought he'd be leaving New York, why would you want to leave New York? Uh, all of a sudden finds him with his wife in Carmel, California. 
Uh, and we turned the company around. We sold it to a mail order company back in New Jersey, pardon me, Pennsylvania. And I said, wow, I'm not sure I want to go back to Pennsylvania. Kind of nice out here. And said, okay, I got to find a job here. And then the, the big lucky break of my uh, career is that I ended up getting a job running direct response marketing for a big software company I'll call Borland International, which now, of course, no one's heard of. But at the time, uh, they were one of the big three. You know, They were head to head with Microsoft at the time. And my job was similar to almost every other one, which is I saw something I didn't think other people saw, which was direct sales through the mail could be an incredibly powerful way for a company to sell its software. And mm -hmm. over the next, uh, I was there for a long time, five, six years, uh, yep. built that, built their whole mailer division until at one point it was nearly half their revenue, you know, hundreds of millions wow. of dollars. And then the next big, uh, that got me into the computer industry where I really mm -hmm. had to understand tech because we were selling computer languages and spreadsheets and right. word processors and databases. And then they asked me to run one of their divisions. And that was, I was 35 or 30, 35-ish. And that was the transition to all of a sudden, now I have engineers reporting to me. Now I have the P&L of a software company. And finally, I left that to help two friends turn around. Pardon me, I left the company to help launch a hardware company. See, it's a long career. It's all kinds of weird jumps back and forth. But I was in Silicon Valley at the time. And so that was kind of this big transition. And I was there just yeah. at the right time. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, what year was that, give or take? That would have been 1995, 96. Yeah, so really the, the really big spike in Silicon Valley, basically. Absolutely. It's the dawn of, it was the internet just starting to go. Yeah. But there was right. this already this huge energy about something important was happening here. Just through this luck, I had ended up right there uh, in the middle of it. So yeah. we, we, did a, we, did, we, did, we started that company, which did a little hardware device, a scanner, which as a side note, was probably the worst job I ever had. The only job that, as my wife sometimes reminds me, where you did not want to get up and go to work in the morning. What was it about that job? Why didn't you enjoy it? Culturally dysfunctional. I Got was it. not the CEO. I uh -huh. was running uh, marketing and product management. And it was just a dysfunctional culture. Yeah. But it taught me a tremendous amount about the importance of culture at a company. So there's value in that as well. But uh, almost as a rebound, I left there to go work with two friends of mine to start a software company, mostly because I needed to work with people that I knew and liked. And we did a small company which uh, sold um, quality assurance software. It was it tools for people who did quality assurance for QA. Yeah. And then another big break, lucky break. And again, you'll, as you're seeing, careers are huge um, amounts of luck. It's, yeah. Obviously, it's preparation. But it's also yeah, opportunity. I agree with you. And it's funny that so many people will shy, like, how do you become successful? Oh, hard work. Definitely hard work. It's like, we all work hard. Like, that's not, there's so much luck in it. And taking the luck is part of it. I think a lot of people stand in their own way where it's like, you took these opportunities and went, I'm going to go for it. A lot of people go, ah, I don't know. They second guess it and they miss it. But still, you have to, that has to pop up. You have to be in the right place, right time on some level for these things to happen. I think that's. Yeah. And it's funny because the people who believe that their success came from them is a little misguided. I mean, yeah. sure, you may have some talents, but if you don't recognize how lucky you were, uh, you're missing something. Yeah. And um, it's important because you've got to have the empathy for all the other people who were smarter or harder working than you where the breaks yeah. didn't go their way. It's, it's an yeah. interesting balance. And you look back, you're never quite sure which things went, went well was because of you and which ones were in spite of you. Yeah. And that's part of, you know, life. But anyway, the lucky break, the other lucky break was then a big company acquired us. And that was, that was certainly lucky from an economic perspective. But the lucky part was the company that acquired us was a company that was, had been founded by and was being run by a guy named Reed Hastings, who played a fairly large um, role in my life from that point. And what was that company called? That was called Pure Atria. It was, okay. and it made, I was by this point way too deep. I mean, I went from my sheet fed scanner, which was a consumer product to quality assurance software, which it was possible to get my parents to understand to all of a sudden yeah. a company that made memory leak detectors way off the, uh, off the deep end, in the deep end there. But luckily lightning uh, struck twice and uh, pure atria was acquired less than a year later by an even bigger, wow. even geekier software company. But luckily, they already had a, a person who was running their marketing. 
and uh-huh. uh, I was um, I was made redundant. I guess is the euphemism for that now. But in that wonderful way, where you know they go, well, listen, these are public companies. It's going to take six months for this merger. We need yeah. you to come to work every day. Keep your mm-hmm. office, your stock vest, you got your internet, got your conference yeah. room, but you don't yeah. need to really do anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so interesting. That was the and that was the moment where I said, okay, that's fine. I'm ready to start company number number five. And just needed to figure out what that was going to be. And what did you start working on? But you know, you've got six months. <laughs> what, what was it? So I said how lucky it was that this company that was had been founded and was being run by Reed Hastings had bought us. Yeah. Yeah. And the second piece of luck was that. In this acquisition, everyone else in our little company got consigned to a suite of offices in the basement to form a business unit to keep on doing QA software. But Reed grabbed me and said, I need a a head of marketing. Um, And so all of a sudden, there I was running marketing for this multinational memory leak detector company. But more importantly, I got to work with Reed very closely. But then the biggest piece of luck was that it turns out that Reed and I lived in the same town and we began to commute to work together. So- I got to know him actually really well from not only a business perspective, but a personal perspective from commuting with him every day. And the other last piece of luck is that when during this acquisition, when I was made redundant, well, Reed yeah. was being made redundant too. So both of us were going to be out of a job. Uh, Reed mm-hmm. did not want to start another company. He was going to mm-hmm. become an educational philanthropist. He was going to go back to school, get a higher degree in education, but wanted to keep his hand in the software, in the startup game. And so we came to this agreement that we'd come up with an idea together, that he'd be my angel investor. I'd start and run the company and he'd be the chair of the board and off we'd go. And we yep. needed an idea. And the, <laughs> the way we did it was um, every morning when Reed would pick me up at my house, I'd have prepped for this and I'd get in the car and I'd go, okay, Reed, I got one. You ready? Personalized shampoo. Uh, we're going to have people cut off a lock of their hair. They're going to mail it to us. We're going to have a team of ace hair scientists who are going to formulate a custom blend and yeah. people are going to subscribe to it. And okay. the same thing would happen, which is nothing. He'd just yeah. be sitting there looking out the window, driving. But I could like, I just sit there patiently. I could knew the wheels were spinning and I might have to wait three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And then almost inevitably, you know, we'd turn and go, okay, that'll never work. And here is why. And he'd lay into me with all the reasons it was such a crappy idea. But then of course I was prepped and I'd come right back at him with the research I'd done. And we just argue (laughs) about this idea. We'd batter it around from every side for the entire commute. Then I'd go back and dig into all the objections he'd made and we'd argue some more. And we'd eventually come to a consensus that either it had promise or it didn't. And it most usually didn't. Out it would go. And then a couple of days later, okay, Reed, personalized pet food. And this would go on for months. And in fact, one of the ideas was, okay, Reed, video rental by mail. But this was 1996, early 97. And at the time, video, yeah, you probably don't remember. You're probably like one. I, I'm, good, I'm good there. I was 10, 11 years old. I remember that era. <laughs> okay. So if you remember, there, it was all via, the, the thing that you watched Lion King on over and over and over again was a VHS cassette. Too big, too heavy, too expensive. And again, I had all this experience from my mail order days of what it took to ship things. And so that idea got rejected. And so the breakthrough, if there was one, was um, a few months later, Reed got in the car and you know, I got in the car and he goes, hey, I just read about this new technology. It's called the uh-huh. DVD. That's in test market now. And it's this thin, yeah. light little disc and they encode a movie on it. And we bang this around and all of a sudden realize that this might allow us to dust off that old video rental by mail idea we rejected a few months ago. Because yeah. now it was a little disc. Maybe we could just mail it to people. Yeah. And then here, here's the point of what entrepreneurs really do. So, okay, there's this idea that both of us are going, wow, this is kind of interesting because we could mail it. We did not then run to the office and begin putting together a business plan, nor did we begin going there and let's go work on our pitch deck and let's apply to be on Shark Tank. We immediately said, how can we figure out whether this is ridiculous or not? And so the middle of the commute, we turned the car around and drove back down to Santa Cruz where we lived and went to buy, look for a buy a music, a buy a, a DVD. And of course there weren't any, it was in test market. So settled for buying a music CD. 
and then went a few doors down and bought a little gift envelope like you'd put a greeting card in and we mailed the CD to Reed's house. And the next morning when he picked me up, he had a little envelope with an unbroken CD in it that had gotten to his house in less than a day for the price of a first class stamp. And if there was an aha moment, that probably was the point we said, this is worth, uh, might be actually worth pursuing. That's amazing. And and I love that you guys were, again, throwing back and forth, like maybe this, maybe that. Like, I think everyone that's been on, you know, is in the entrepreneurial world has tried to start a custom dog food business at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so where'd you go from there? Did you immediately go, all right, we got to go put a bunch of money into this and go buy every DVD we can on the planet? Like, what, what was the next step? Well, you know, you do a bu- you do as much research as you can, but there's no one who was doing this ridiculous thing. Yeah. And so at some point, you can't answer the real question, which is, does anyone care? Nor what, what complexities, you just don't know. And yeah. then versus now, things were really different. Yeah. It was much, much, much harder to try something than it is now. You know, if you wanted to do an e-commerce website, you couldn't just go up and start to do a Shopify store uh, and be up and running in an hour. You know, if you wanted to take payments, you couldn't just have it embedded already or use Stripe or PayPal. You had to write all the portals to the banks. If you wanted to serve web pages, you had to buy servers and install them and wire them and connect them up yourself. You know, wanted security. If you wanted analytics, all that stuff was not off the shelf, wasn't in AWS. You had to build it all. So to find out if this was actually going to work or not, we had to take a pretty big swing. And so Reed wrote a check uh, for about $2 million. Um, I hired about a dozen people. I got this small, crappy office in an old bank building with the safe in a corner uh, and dirty green carpet and uh, we had card tables and beach chairs and we couldn't, didn't have real furniture. And yeah. uh, we spent about six months putting to get, building a simple e-commerce website, which is the type that you could put together now in half an hour for- I would say, yeah, um, back then it took six months. <laughs> yeah, for 1995. Um, but we actually uh, took a swing at it. Yes, and uh-huh. we did. We went out and got a, a single, co- at least one copy of every single DVD available at the time, which was about wow. 900. And on April 14th, 1998, we, um, oh, happy anniversary. Uh, oh, yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, oh, that's pretty cool. I got to get on social media yeah. here. So I'm not sure when the, when this is actually airing, but we're taping yeah. it on April 14th, 1998, yeah. uh, on April 14th. So happy anniversary to Netflix. So some number of years, uh, whatever that is, I can't do the math in my head that quickly. Or 20, right. whatever. You can do it. You're smarter than I am. Yeah. We launched yeah. the, uh, away we went. We opened to the public and uh, that was the beginning. Yeah, got it. And so it worked immediately, I assume. Everybody, you sold out of DVDs and everybody subscribed and you yeah. <laughs> As they say in, uh, in Silicon Valley. No, uh, you know, listen, when I went around pitching this idea, mm-hmm. everybody said the same thing. You know, that'll never work. You know, my investors, potential investors said that. Potential employees said that. My my wife said that. And everyone had these kind of two, the two same objectives, you know, objections. You know, one was, hey, it's a digital medium, just a matter of time before everyone's downloading. But yeah. the big objection was there is Blockbuster on freaking every corner in the country. There's 9,000 Blockbusters. Why on wow. earth is someone going to rent through the mail? Yeah. Um, and lo and behold, though, on April 14th, 1998, when we launched, it turned out they were right. It was a terrible idea. Uh, it didn't work at all. Uh, nobody okay. would rent from us. And thus began a year and a half saga of us trying everything we could possibly think of to figure out some way to get this ridiculous idea to actually work. I mean, we, we knew there was a there there. We knew that people yeah. hated Blockbuster. We knew that it was almost impossible to find DVDs anywhere. Yeah. We just needed to figure out what is the business model? What is it that will make customers comfortable enough that they're willing to have delayed gratification in ordering a movie from us and having it arrive yep. one to four days later? And so what ended up being that solution? How did you, you said a year and a half. So what happened in a year and a half? You were like, there we go. I like, kicked it off. Yeah. You know, because of my direct response background, I was very comfortable with the testing process. And I had lots of things I was willing to try and wanted to try. Uh, If anything, the problem is I was a bit too much of a perfectionist. I was still applying kind of an old model where since you're printing things like 
catalogs and direct mail pieces, you really had to get them right before you went through that process. Um, yeah. And at first, the tests we would do were kind of these little mini works of art where we would do custom photography and we'd lovingly craft every word of copy and we'd get a copy editor and we'd check every link and we'd stress test the site. And not surprisingly, it might take two or three weeks to run, get one of these tests going. And then we'd test it and it wouldn't work. And we'd kind of sheepishly look at each other and say, wow, we just wasted like three yeah. weeks. All right, yeah. let's go faster. And we'd do a test in two weeks and then we'd, we'd test in a week. And then pretty yeah. soon we're testing something every day and then multiple things a day. And as you can imagine, things are getting pretty crappy. You know, there's broken links and there's the wrong image or the watermark is yeah. in it where the Greek page is still in Greek. But there was this amazing lesson that came out of this, which informed so much of what I've used ever since and what I think has actually helped make Netflix so successful ever since, which is that no matter how crappy these tests were, that it didn't make a difference. That yep. when we took a bad idea and spent three weeks making it the perfect execution of a bad idea, it didn't make it a good idea. It was still a bad idea. But if we had stumbled on a good idea, then even the most half-assed thing would tell us something. I mean, customers yep. would reboot the site where they'd call us and they'd figure out our unlisted phone number. They'd figure out where the office yep. was and knock on the door. And it sent this yep. message loud and clear that this, this thing, that's something that works. And then we knew what to fix. Yep. And we did this for a year and a half, a year and a half uh -huh. of one failed test after another until finally we stumbled on what in some ways was the least intuitive thing of all, which yep. was the genesis of this one was we were in the warehouse. And at this point, the warehouse has several hundred thousand DVDs in it. And looking around and going, it's such a shame that all these DVDs are just sitting on the shelves. Why can't we figure out some way to store them at the customer's houses? Let them just keep them, keep them as long as they want. Uh, no due dates and no late fees. And then we go, why charge them each time they want to exchange a disc? Let's just make it a subscription program. And we tested those two things in tandem. And amazingly enough, it actually worked. And that marked the point. It, it took off. People loved it. Wow. They told their friends and it was a subscription. So the big thing was, are they going to cancel? And so at the end of the 30-day free trial, lo and behold, like yeah. people didn't cancel. And yep. that was when we'd figured out our repeatable, scalable model. That's when we realized we actually had something which worked. And yep. that set the stage for everything that came after. And were you ever worried with a subscription model that someone was just going to like trade out DVDs every day, that it was going to be, they're going to abuse it so much that it was going to be hard to keep up? Or was that just not a concern? Not a concern. I mean, yes, of course it's a concern. You have no idea what's going to happen. Right. But, and the test is designed to figure that out, which is sure. what happens. But yeah. the reality is, yeah, there's, there's going to be some people who do that. But for the yeah. great majority of people, they're viewing the subscription service not as a way to get a deal and watch 30 movies in a month. For yeah. the most part, what the subscription allowed them to do is have three or four movies sitting on top of the television at any given point. Yeah. So what was our biggest liability, which was this latency, if you want, I want to watch a movie, oh shit, now I've got to wait three days. Yeah. And Blockbuster, it's 15 minutes. We yeah. now flipped that on its head. Because now, oh, I want to watch a movie. Well, I've got four of them on top of the TV. Yeah. And so it's instantaneous as opposed to Blockbuster. I've got to get in my car. I've got to find parking. I've got to drive. It yeah. allowed us to completely change the script. So now we were faster than Blockbuster. And that was what the deliverable, that's what the promise, the brand promise was, was convenience, not economy. And you didn't realize that until that moment, right? Like it wasn't like you set out for convenience. You just realized like, oh, this is the pain point we can solve with this idea. Ah, correct. Again, from, as we, as very, very, for those of you who are paying attention from the very, very beginning of our conversation, you know, I was saying that it's not about falling in love with your idea. It's yeah. about falling in love with the problem. Yeah. And we knew what the problem was and we were willing to try all the ideas we could. We realized that almost 99, listen, I know 99.99% of my ideas are bad ones. But I don't waste time trying to figure out in advance which ones are good and which ones are bad. I have no clue. And so I try them all. Yeah. And I figure out ways to try them quickly, cheaply, and easily. The lesson we learned from yeah. Netflix. I don't spend three weeks on a test. I spend three minutes on a test. Quick, yeah. that, that's, that's the genius these days is not, can you come up with an idea? I don't give a crap about your idea. It's a stupid idea. I, what I want to know is how clever you can be about that you figured out a really quick, cheap, and easy way to try it. That yep. is what genius is.
Yep. And so there are a few other pivotal moments here. As you said, when you started out, you knew streaming was going to come into play. How soon before you guys went, okay, we figured out this mail thing and now we have subscription, it's working. Now we have to do the internet. Well, we we were, again, we knew this was a problem from the very beginning. We began preparing for it from the very beginning. And listen, to give you the quick answer, we didn't stream for another nine years. Nine years. Wow. But yeah. we began preparing for it from day negative 180. I mean, we knew it was going to come. We just didn't know when. And so we knew that if we positioned this company as Netflix, it is the world's fastest shipper of plastic. That yeah. might cement some positioning for people in the DVD era, but it would be worthless when, not if, but yeah. when the streaming world came along. But if we had said, Netflix, it is the best solution for people who want to download or stream movies, well, people would have known who we were, but no one would have cared because there was no content, yep. there was no bandwidth. I mean, there's all kind, yep. there was no digital rights management. There was all kinds of problems. It wasn't going to happen. So we decided to position the company orthogonally, you know, which delivery agnostic. And we positioned yep. the company as Netflix is a place to discover great stories, yep. which meant didn't make a difference how you received the movie. We wanted you to think of us as a place you came to for entertainment. And yes, yeah. right now and for the next nine years, if you want that great entertainment, we're going to mail it to you. Yep. But eventually, we're going to be able to stream it to you. And eventually, we're going to be able to beam it telepathically into your fillings or however people in the, you know, project it holographically from your glasses, whatever. We don't want you to think about that. We want you to think about us as standing for content. And we did yep. that from the very beginning with the fact, as I mentioned, we had every single DVD available from day one. Yeah. We began to build great tools to help you discover great content, eventually culminating in the, the algorithms for predicting taste. We all the way in along built this dynamic website that would surface things that we thought you would like. So it was always about fulfilling that brand promise, but picking the right brand promise so that when the day came, when you could begin streaming, that we already had customers who thought about us the way we wanted them to think about us yeah. and that we could then transition them. You know, and you know, now you look, of course, that you know, Netflix labored in the wilderness for years, you know, mm -hmm. 10 years from 2009 until uh, 2007, you know, until what 2017, 2018, when all of a sudden, lo and behold, the world acknowledges that uh, streaming content is the way to do it. And Netflix hadn't just been competing and learning that business since 2007, they'd been yeah. learning that business since uh, April 14th, 1998. Yeah. And so how quickly when streaming came out, did you get rid of DVDs? How quickly did it? It hasn't, ha hasn't happened yet. Uh, still Netflix still has a more than a million DVD uh, subscribers. You know that. That's amazing. And you said, was it thousands? But thousand, when, yeah. when one of the things Netflix does exceptionally well is recognizing when they need to change direction. And yeah. almost right after the streaming started, we realized that is the future. That is what yeah. customers need to get right. And we will prioritize every single decision about getting streaming right, even if yeah. it cannibalizes our existing business, which at that moment is 99% of our revenue. Yeah. Which is so terrifying to do as a business. That's Absolutely a right. Big, you know, it's, yeah. Entrepreneurship is courage. Entrepreneurship is courage. And so how long were you at Netflix until? I know at some point. I left even before the streaming took place. How come? Uh, you know, I, if yeah. I must say so myself. No, so listen. In there's a lot of the story we haven't told, but you know, Netflix eventually did have an IPO, and this little company which had been struggling was starting to show a lot of promise. All of a sudden, we had the resources. We were able to hire amazing people, and it slowly began to dawn on me that although I loved this company, you know, like a child, you know, I wanted to fight its battles and right its wrongs, and I recognized though that. I wasn't really very good at it anymore, that the mm -hmm. problems and the challenges were bigger company problems. And perhaps more interestingly is I didn't really enjoy it as much. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that, you know, if you look at, well, for me anyway, this kind of definition of success is not, as I said before, not economic or wealth yeah. or power. It's, do you have the control of your life? Are you able yeah. to spend your day doing the things you really enjoy? And the thing mm -hmm. that I really enjoy was early stage, you know, was figuring it out, was working with a small group of people and sitting around a table solving really interesting puzzles. And that if I was going to really call myself successful, I should be doing that. And yep. came to that conclusion and then I spent about a year 
transitioning all my responsibilities to other people in the company so that I would be wow. able to step away. And, and now I've been able to spend for the last 20 years or so, I ha get to do exactly what I want and which I like and which I immodestly am really good at, which is the early yeah. stage companies. You know, it's why I have the podcast, my own podcast, where I'm helping mentor other entrepreneurs. It's why I wrote the book. You know, it's why I have the YouTube channel. It's why I have all those things is trying to help people get their businesses going. So I Makes love that. Sense. And so two last questions. Uh, so what's next? Is it just continuing what you're doing, helping entrepreneurs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I almost from the minute I left, well, I ended up getting sucked into starting another company. I had said I'm done, but you know, I, I made some mistakes and little by little got pulled into something, which was ended up being great. We sold that to Google a few years ago. But all, all ever since I left Netflix, I've been working with other early stage entrepreneurs. I'm trying to help them have some of the mm -hmm. success that I do to try and share all these tips and tricks and secrets I've learned over 40 years. And I'll never stop yeah. doing that. What's a little bit different now is in addition to actually hands-on helping a handful of companies and founders be more effective, I'm trying to scale it a little bit. I'm trying to really share some of these uh, tips and tricks and secrets more broadly. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, it's why I do the That Will Never Work podcast, where I actually let people listen in on these mentoring sessions. You know, it's why I do all the social media stuff I do. So mm -hmm. there's no next. There's always new entrepreneurial puzzles to solve. There's always yep. fascinating entrepreneurs to work with. I mean, we're entering into the Web3 world, which I yep. personally am excited about as I was when I saw the internet coming along. And I've got a bunch of companies that I'm working with in that space. Right. This just never gets old, Eric. Yep. And so I agree with you. And the, so last question for me, and you kind of mentioned this, what is your one piece of advice for someone that, you know, whether they're younger, older, whatever, whoever they are, they want to get out and go for it. Stop thinking, someone, start yep. doing. S simple as that. You have yep. this great idea. So what are you waiting for? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Your idea is, okay, this big, big company, big, no, that you're not going to do that. Take that yep. idea, break yep. it apart, pick one piece of it and start tomorrow to figure out is it a good idea or a bad idea? And that's what every single successful entrepreneur I know is, is great at. They don't think, they act. And yep. if you don't act, you don't find out. And if you don't find out, you spend your whole life dreaming about something that I wish I had done. And then you tell your friends, oh, I thought about that. Wait, wait, good for you. Someone else yeah. actually had, exactly. the, uh, had the balls to do something about it. Amen. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on Hot Talk. My pleasure, Eric. And listen, good luck with everything. Love thank the you. book. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.